Good day everyone, you're listening to Time for Your Hobby, and this is episode 90, Hanging Out with Clouds. I'm your host Alex, and today I have the honor to have Fred as my guest on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing terrific. That's always good, and you're my 90th episode, which is pretty cool. It's kind of surreal to realize, like, oh, you know, I just casually went to 90, and you know, let's just feel this high, and being a pilot is the perfect high for this podcast episode, for the 90th episode. I'm making weird analogies and segues right now, but anyways, uh... Today, my guest is Fred, and before we jump into the topic, uh, Fred, who are you, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I am a producer-director, have had my own production company for 35 years, and uh, I'm semi-retired now, and I'm happy to say that I'm actually signing a contract tomorrow to executive produce and develop a new series for a network, which I can't talk about, but uh, I can talk about a lot of the things that I've done, and one of the most fun things that I've done is to pursue my hobby, which became a part of my business, uh, and that is as a pilot. And I've always wanted to be, I had a written goal to do a bunch of things, and at this point, I've done all but one of them, and if I uh, get that contract signed tomorrow, which we will, uh, I get to pursue my last one, which is a develop that new network uh, musical variety television show. But in the meantime, the flying has been a passion since I was a little boy. My my uncle uh, had uh, a company airplane, and this was when I was like, oh, maybe seven, eight years old. And he let me sit in the cockpit, and that was it. I was, I was always excited about airplanes. I think every little kid is. But that was really the spark. And then I used to get my dad to take me out to the airport and watch the airplanes come and go. And then when I finally got into business, I started using the aircraft to fly uh, and start taking lessons. And then I learned to fly so that I could commute to Disneyland when I was a musician there from San Diego uh, and beat that traffic on the freeway uh, (laughs) going back and forth. And then as I became a producer and director, I'd fly to Burbank uh, all the time to go into the studios to do my directing and such. And then uh, after renting airplanes for a number of years, I had uh, two or three uh, emergencies uh, that were really caused by uh, maintenance issues. And I vowed to get to the point where I can actually have my own airplane and I don't have to well, I'm going to have to maintain it to a, a much higher standard, and you won't have four or five people flying. It'll just be for me. I always know what the maintenance levels are, and I will maintain it. And if I don't have enough money to maintain it, I'll sell it. So I ended up uh, through the years with a total of four different airplanes. Uh, but I used them both for business and for pleasure, and uh, it was just so much fun. And I think the coolest thing is when you learn to fly and and start to have a reason to fly other than just getting up in the air uh, that it fulfills that uh, well we say we justify it but we really rationalize why we want to fly and uh, <laughs> I had a lot of a lot of fun doing that so I ended up uh, I've flown a lot of single engine airplanes but I've also flown mostly uh, as soon as I could I got into twins and one two reasons for that. When I was a student pilot, uh, and let me explain that, you know, when you're a student pilot, you've soloed, but you can't go flying without uh, an okay by your instructor. And 
I was doing uh, uh, solo work where I was doing touch and goes at an airport where you would just take off and you fly the pattern. You come in and you touch down on the runway and then immediately add power and take off again and go around. And you're just practicing that approach in the, in the landing touchdown part. And you don't want to have to stop and taxi all the way back and take off again. So you come down, you touch the wheels down. OK, you've got the landing made. Add power and uh, take off again. Well, I was on the it's called the downwind when you're parallel to the runway coming down around to make your final approach. And then when you make your turn uh, into before final approach, it's called your base leg. And then you turn final. I was on the downwind and you're pretty high. And you're taught that, you know, you want to be high enough that if you lost an engine, you could glide to a landing because all airplanes glide. They are all gliders. They just come down a little more steeply than a regular glider does. But they still they can all land uh, gliding. So I was throttling back, as you do on the downwinds. You're slowing down. And I pulled the throttle back and the whole throttle came out in my hand. The linkage to the engine had let loose. So now the engine is in idle. Uh, so you're not going to get any more power. To, and you would normally need power to make your turns and you carry some power all the way around. And now I'm a glider. Uh, so at that point, I called the tower and I said, I've lost my engine. I need to make a short approach, which means I'm not going to fly out, turn the normal traffic pattern, come in. I'm, I'm going to start angling for that runway right now because I'm coming down. And uh, and then I said, student pilot. And so I didn't even <laughs> declare an actual emergency that the tower did for me. But by the time anybody would get a fire truck out there, I was all, would be already on the ground because it's just literally uh, probably a minute and a half before I'm going to be on the ground. So I flew it in and I made a short approach and I landed just fine. And the engine's still running, so I'm idling, and it's barely moving taxiing-wise because you normally have to add some power to taxi. But I taxied off the runway and such and then shut down, and the people who owned the airplane where I was renting sent a tug out and pulled me in. So I had that happen. And then after I was certified and flying all the time, I was over in, in Las Vegas, and I had actually gone to a meeting over there, and I was coming back. And this is the early days. Just as I was coming out of McCarran Airport, out over the mountain coming south toward San Diego, uh, the engine on this plane, and this was a six-passenger single-engine plane, and the engine quit. Boom. And I was on my climb out, and I was just right over this mountain, and I looked down, and I'm looking for where, where I'm going to glide to to land. As you're In a single, you're always thinking that, where do I land? And the, I was over very hostile terrain where the rocks were about as big as houses. <laughs> wow. Going, this is not going to end well. <laughs> so, and I, and I just been handed off by the tower, uh, LA center for radar following, uh, which I always did because it's, it's just safer. If something happens, they at least know where, where to go send the, the rescue people. And I called, uh, called the center and they said, uh, Roger, you're below our radar coverage. And so I was not quite high enough to be in the radar coverage yet. And I would have been in, in a few minutes climbing, but now I am descending, I'm gliding. So I'm going through emergency procedures and I'm, you change the fuel tank over, you turn on the fuel pumps, you start going through things and trying to restart the engine, get it going again. Nothing's really working. 
And then uh, there's an uh, it was the time back back in the day, there was a jet coming out. It was a 707 from uh, Western Airlines was flying out and they come on the frequency and they said, uh, two one whiskey, we've got you in sight. And uh, they they circled over. They diverted from their flight path and circled over me so they could direct uh, the rescue people to find me on the ground, which was kind of cool. But I'm still going to hit a rock somewhere. That's, this is not this is not going to end well. Anyway, I, I went through all the procedures twice and then the engine started and it was just fine. And I climbed on up and went on my way and got back to San Diego and they put it in the shop and everything. They couldn't find anything wrong with it. And the best and they never did. They never did. They had a couple of possible explanations, but nobody ever found anything wrong with it. And I went, this is not good. I think I want to fly planes with two engines. So I learned how to fly twins. And um, over the years, uh, all these years of flying and uh, 4,600 hours in the logbook, I had uh, a couple of, and they were rented still airplanes. I had two of them uh, either quit or go partial power. And one uh, engine quit on me coming out of Santa Monica, where I've been doing some uh, editing at a local uh, edit place up there. And I was right over LAX and boom, it this one engine just quit, declared an emergency. And when you lose an engine, you land at the next available airport, period. You don't mess around with it. But they fly on one engine just fine. You just have to know how to fly that way. And you learn it part of your certification. So I declared the emergency and landed at LAX. And um, no problems. Landed a single engine, uh, then taxied back in. And they found out that uh, one of the magnetos had blown up because it was old and had not been maintenanced. So... I'm thinking I need to buy an airplane. <laughs> so, so I did. I bought a used airplane and then uh, took it in a shop and had him go through it absolutely top to bottom and everything was, you know, just in mint condition. And I flew that for a lot of years and went a lot of places. It's so much fun. And the coolest thing about flying, whether in a single or, or twin, is when you get up in the morning and uh, after you get your instrument rating, you're allowed to fly in the clouds. And you get a clearance up through the overcast and, and it's sunrise and you're just coming through the cloud tops. And I think you, a lot of people have seen this in an airliner when you come up through the clouds and you're just skimming the tops of the clouds. And it's so beautiful. All of a sudden you're in the sunshine. That is the coolest feeling. And believe me, the best views in the pointy end of the airplane. Uh, I can the, imagine. The, the, <laughs> so, oh, it's it's breathtaking. And the, the, the exhilaration that you feel of being in control of this airplane and being able to go places and the freedom it makes you feel is it, just amazing. There's no red lights. There's no green lights in the air. You just go. And then did you ever do a time lapse? Let's say have a little camera and just record? Uh, not really. Uh, the only time I did that kind of thing was we one of the jugs. Big jobs we had uh, was to do an IMAX film for American Airlines. They were my client for 35 years for all their biggest work. And uh, we got this IMAX film and we loaded up an IMAX camera in the nose of this Learjet. And we did a whole lot of flying on that. And I was uh, got qualified to fly as uh, the uh, co-pilot in the Learjet, which is uh, that the Lears require two pilots. 
So, uh, and I was flying with some of the best captains uh, who do air-to-air work in the world. One of them was Clay Lacey. That's who I first was flying with the most. And Clay, if you looked, if, uh, you want to look up Clay Lacey and go on IMBD to look at all the films he's been in and, and flown for, oh my God, it's, it's the biggest feature films ever made in aviation. But uh, flying with Clay was so much fun. And we got to do a lot of really cool things in the Learjet. And flying that Lear, what a rocket ship that is. Uh, so much fun to fly. So I got to do, uh, uh, the you know, co-pilot, you do get to fly some of the stuff. And I got to do some takeoffs and landings. But when we were doing close formation on other airplanes with this air-to-air work, you want uh, somebody who's really, really experienced at the tight formation flying. And that's all the captain. I'd all, only fly with those captains. And then I'd be directing the film shooting. And then when we were done with the film shooting, then uh, I would fly usually to the, ne- the next destination or whatever. And sometimes I'd land, sometimes they, they would land. It depends on the situation. But I got to get quite a bit of stick time as well. But with the actual flying formation was all the captain's work. And I made sure we had the I flew with about four different captains who I totally trusted. And because you're getting real close to other airplanes and and, it, and you got to know who's flying the other airplane, too. It's dangerous if unless you're with really good people. Yeah, I saw the pictures you sent me and the planes are extremely close. And well, from some people are like, oh, it's not that close. But when it comes to actual planes flying beside each other, that's really close. And. Yeah, I can imagine it's nerve-wracking if you're just seeing that from a different perspective. And actually, for you, do you remember your feeling the first time you flew? Not like just being a passenger in a plane, but being the pilot. What was your feeling? Oh, it was elation and and some nerves. <laughs> but uh, I had flown as a passenger in private aircraft before that and got a little bit of stick time uh, sitting in the right seat. But once I was sitting in the left seat with an instructor and starting to learn to fly, it was terrific. And I had a really good guy. Uh, I was uh, in my early 20s, and the guy that I started flying with was a – he had been a crash investigator for the early NTSB. He was also an airline pilot and had been a fighter pilot in the war and in Korean war. And he was just really, really thorough with me. But I also got my first airline client, Western Airlines at the time. And I was learning to fly and and I had these meetings at LAX. So it just made sense. I'd hire my instructor, we'd rent the airplane, we'd fly to LAX in a twin. And I had six hours of total time as a pilot, uh, <laughs> as a student pilot, and I'm flying a twin in instrument conditions into LAX. And that's what that's a lot of my early, early experience flying was in complex airplanes with this instructor. And then when I did my actual just practice flying, it was with, in single engine airplanes with the instructor. So I was uh, immersed in complex flying from day one and learned how to fly in and out of LAX as a student pilot with my instructor. So I had a real good background and uh, he just, they taught me all sorts of stuff that you usually don't get till you're in more advanced phase. And then we would go back and when we did just lessons, we'd be in the single and he'd put me through the standard teaching that they, that they put you through. 
But I didn't get my um, my private license till I was way into the the, the game. I was, uh, gosh, I I think I had about 50, 40 or fifty hours before I soloed, uh, which is a long, long time for you. You usually come closer to that. But uh, that was okay because I was getting all that experience. And it really did pay off for me later. It was so much fun. Oh, my God. It's just so much fun. And speaking about all those hours of experience, where was the first place you you flew solo or with a co-pilot? But it was your first place you flew after you got your license. You know, I I don't remember exactly, but it was probably to L.A. Because I started flying regularly, even as a student pilot. I was, before I got my final license, I had uh, clearance to do a whole bunch of my trips at night from um, Montgomery Field in San Diego to Fullerton Airport, which is the closest little airport to Disneyland. And I would go up there and then I, I, had, I had a band at the time and uh, we were, when I was still starting my fledgling production company, but I was playing in a rock band. We at one point opened for Stevie Wonder, but mostly we were playing a lot of Disneyland main stages and uh, other gigs in the LA and San Diego area. But I used to, because we were a regular at Disneyland, I'd fly from San Diego up to uh, Fullerton and then take a cab over to the park and do the job and then fly back at night. So that was the first solo work and uh, actually pre-license. I couldn't take any passengers, but I could do that trip with my instructor's clearance in, in good weather. Man, it must have been so amazing. And so like, it must have been like a out-of-body experience. Like you had to be there to be focused, but I mean, <laughs> it must have been surreal just to be doing that. Yeah. It, well, I think the, the, the memory I have, the, the first time that was really both... It, acute attention and a bit of anxiety was the first time I flew an instrument approach to minimums solo. Now, you've, I've done a lot of instrument work with my instructor pilot with me, uh, but you have to fly it. And I did a lot of the practice where you put the hood on so you can't look outside. And I did some actual instrument flying where you're in the clouds. But this was the first time solo, and it was going into Santa Barbara. And they were down to minimum. So you're flying what's called an ILS, which is the instrument landing system. And you're following. It, it's, it gives you a glide slope and it gives you a, a bearing right to the airport. So you fly the two needles down. And it, it's kind of like playing a video game, but it's, <laughs> you're looking at. But you're, you have to learn to scan like five instruments at once. And, you know, you have to control your speed, your attitude, your altitude, your rate of descent, all that kind of stuff to stay on the glide path. Anyway, you come down and you actually, on an ILS, you normally break out at 200 feet above the ground. That's pretty low. And then you have to see the airport landing area clear enough to land. So the first time I did that, you're coming right down to it and you're getting down to 400 feet, 300 feet, and you still don't see the runway. And then 200 feet, and boom, there it is. And you have, you know, and you're going to touch down at, at 200 feet. You're probably going to touch down in the next 15, 20 seconds. That's how, you know, low you are. So that can kind of get the hair on the back of your neck going a little bit. But the first time it was great. Then after that, it, it got more and more routine. And then you just follow your procedures and, and practice it. You practice frequently and it's, it's no big deal. 
it became second second nature for you. It just it's a part of your body. It's a sixth sense. And actually, did you ever teach anybody else how to fly a plane, or just not necessarily teach, but just show in like what your uncle did for you? Yes, I did. I I would show kids. A matter of fact, uh, there's one of the most well known uh, instructors uh, in in the world uh, with a flight school and everything is uh, John King. John and Martha King, the King schools, and they do DVDs and they do a teaching of the all the ground school work. But the Kings are just huge in the business. And he was also based at the same airport. So when my kids were going to school, we would do airport day for the kids coming out. And I, I had my twin at the time and he had uh, a private jet. And he would bring the jet over and I'd get the twin there and we'd take the kids through and show them all about airplanes and everything. This is elementary school kids and let them sit in the cockpits and all that. But John had the greatest thing that he would do with these kids. And these are mostly like sixth graders and occasionally he was seventh graders uh, in in middle school. But he would ask them, tell me what makes an airplane fly. And now the kids, knowing (laughs) that they're coming to the airport, had done some science and they would talk about the Bernoulli's principle and, and all this kind of stuff. And no matter what they said, John would say, no, that's not what makes airplanes fly. And (laughs) they just went on and on. And, of course, they're giving him the scientific reasons airplanes fly. And he he finally says, no, kids, it's money that makes airplane (laughs) flies, a whole lot of it. (laughs) That's that's a good answer. It's a bit of an expensive hobby. And I only was able to indulge in it in the level I did because it was a time machine for me. It enabled me to start my production company and have jobs like the Western Airlines account was my first big job and be able to still have the band and play at Disneyland and still be home and be able to do that commuting. And it's much more efficient with your time. And I could get to where I could leave the office and I had, a, for example, a recording session in LA and I'm directing talent for a film or a video that I'm working on uh, for the voiceover work. And I would fly to L.A. and go into the studio, do the session and come home and be home in in time to either continue to work in the afternoon or I could actually fly up there and have a a three o'clock session, be done at four and in L.A. and be home in San Diego at dinner by 530. Wow. (laughs) The practicalities of having an airplane. I should probably start saving my money for one of those and then get at least over 50 hours. I know you said it's an overkill for an amount of time, but you know what? If if it gets me the exact same experience as you, it's worth it. I was, you were talking about film uh, production. How do you tie in your uh, being a pilot and flying with your film production? Was it one that came before the other one or they just came at the same time? And you said, yes, I want to combine these two together. They're both my passions. It was, well... Let me go back a little bit further. In uh, seventh grade, we had a teacher who gave us uh, sort of a rudimentary aptitude test. And it's what do you want to be when you grow up is what it was really all about. And a lot of kids would have whatever it was that they had in in their brains. You know, you had the fireman, the policeman, the astronaut, all that kind of stuff. But I wanted to be an audio engineer. I wanted to be a professional musician. I was already playing trumpet. Uh, I wanted to be a television director and I wanted to be a pilot. And by in high school, I started recording uh, for a company that did high school bands and made records for them. They'd be 
you know, like CDs or today, but at that time it was records. And they actually made records. We go out and record these schools. And I met the guy who was doing that. And I ended up being an engineer recording for him. And then later when I was transitioning out in college, I started working for an AV company that did sound and we did the big rock concerts. And I mixed sound for the Moody Blues, Creedence Clearwater, Three Dog Night, Can't Heat, on and on and on. Uh, so I was, I became a, a professional audio engineer for live mixes uh, while I was still in college. And then I also directed my first television show through a junior achievement program, a commercial show on the air live when I was 18. So I was following that path. And then when I got in my 20s and started, the, the band was really going well. That was paying for college with all the music. But I was also starting the production company right after I got out of college. And that's when I wanted to get into the flying because it was a means and it, it was a way to commute. And it was really triggered by both Western Airlines becoming a client and the Disney gigs and just the time savings of going back and forth to L.A. And I didn't want to live up there. So that was the, how it all started. And then I found that as a pilot, it was so much easier to work and talk to people in the aviation industry. Uh, so I ended up getting and I was became a well-known and good producer director uh, of these videos and uh, Falcon Jet uh, hired me through the years. I did work for Learjet. I did work for Cessna. And then I did work for uh, American Airlines. I did some work for United at one point, just a little bit. I did work for U.S. Air with uh, Americans' permission. But the being in being a pilot and being able to work with the airlines, I was able to combine filmmaking with my aviation. And that was really terrific. And I got to do a whole lot of things that other people might not have been able to do. For example, when we did the uh, we did a, a, a video for American and they they was all about telling the left hand what the right hand was doing between departments. They everybody was doing their own thing and wasn't caring about the others. And there was friction between all the departments, for example, the the pilots versus the flight attendants versus the reservations department, all you know, maintenance, <laughs> the people who run the airports, they all weren't working together. So they wanted this video and they're having a major thrush thrust through the entire company to get this message out. We've got to work together. We're, we are a team. So they said to open this meeting, we want this really cool video. And they gave me a million dollars to do it. Uh, we'd been doing a lot of work for him for a long time. So there was a lot of trust there. And they said, we need to do this. And I, one of the ways I, and they kept saying the pilots never come together for a meeting. We can run this video at all these other meetings because everybody has a group meetings, but not the pilots. They only come in when they're doing recurrent training and they're, you know, two or three of them at a time. And you don't have a large group to do this with. So, and they don't want to watch uh, a video anyway. They don't care about a company video, you know, whatever. How are you going to get them to watch it? So I said, let's put some planes, some airliners, a flight of four in formation and do some real spectacular aerial photography. Every single pilot will want to see that. And they said, oh, well, well you know, that sounds pretty dangerous and da, 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 da. And I said, you've seen all the other work I've done air to air of shooting your airliners and such. He says, oh, yeah, it was major leagues. So 
you think that'll work? I said, I know it'll work. That's awesome. So I said, well, go talk to the, go talk to the chief pilot. If you can talk him into it, we'll do it. So I went over and told the chief pilot and he was kind of excited. And then he, uh, and he asked me, he says, is that your MU2 on the ramp over at uh, DFW? I said, yeah, how'd you know? He says, I'm the chief pilot. I know everything. <laughs> and um, so immediately I had good reputation and credentials because A, I was a pilot. B, I was flying at that point a jet prop, nine passenger airplane as my personal plane. And he had seen all my, uh, my other work, including IMAX work for the, I did a film for their, uh, two films for their C.R. Smith Museum, the American Airlines Museum. So he said, yeah, let's, I, I, I like it. And he says, well, where are you going to do this and how? And I said, well, I've already talked to operations. The operations people knew me and uh, would, would probably fly it somewhere, probably Chicago, and he says, well, who's going to fly the uh, the Lear? And I said, well, Clay Lacey. And that's the name I gave you earlier. And Clay is, I mean, he is in the Hall of Fame of all of the major aviation organizations. He is known. And it was, and it was say no more. <laughs> and, and, and he says, who's, who's flying a right seat? And I said, oh, I am. And I'm directing just like I have on all these other shoots. He goes, sounds good to me. And then I said, I need to. We need to pick some pilots who have uh, formation experience, not just line pilots, but guys who are, you know, weekend warriors, probably in the reserves who are still flying fighter jets in formation because that formation skill is something that you just can't let sit there for 20 years and then come back to it and, and do something complex like we're going to do. So we talked about that and, and got it all set up with these pilots who we're experienced in formation and we're still doing formation work. So we got it all set and then we flew it out of uh, Chicago and it was terrific. Uh, the last second, uh, we had a Boeing 777, a 767, 757 and 737. At the last minute, the 767 uh, had a mechanical. Uh, there was not the one that we had. It was flying fine. But it was what they call their spare airplanes because they have so many flights going, they have to keep them spares so they don't have to cancel a trip if one has a mechanical. So they bring another airplane in, they fly it late, but they still fly it. So they, they took our plane, airplane to fill the slot that another airplane couldn't fly. But so we had three airplanes, but it didn't matter. We, we still went up and flew this spectacular footage. And when it was all said and done, we actually had to put up a separate website and make a whole new production for the pilots to order copies of the videos to, to give to their families and such. They all wanted it. They <laughs> heard about it. We didn't have to do anything. I mean, you talk about a network where the, the word gets out better than, than any commercial on TV, better than all the political commercials combined, <laughs> the word of mouth. And... Uh, so it was just such a success and every pilot not only watched it, but bought, bought extra copies to give to their friends of the flying stuff. So, and it was because of my aviation background that I was able to combine the filming and the aviation. And I, I got to tell you, being able to take two of your passions and do it in a way that one pays for the other and you get to combine them in your art. Holy crap, it doesn't get any better than that. 
I completely agree with you. Um, before starting a podcast, I used to be a music producer as well. And I loved everything to do with audio uh, editing and fixing. I'm self-taught. And then I ended up doing the intro to my own uh, podcast. And I just love doing that stuff. And you're absolutely right. When you combine two passions together, it just makes it amazing. And you sound like a person that can relate to anybody. Like the ability to just use your technical skills from learning how to fly and just transmit that into your directing skills and your film production skills to sell it to other people. And also having the word of mouth, just like, hey, this is what I do. And like, oh my God, I can trust him. You know what? I want more copies. I want to I wanna work with this guy. I want to I wanna be friends with Fred. We're friends now, right, Fred? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. It was... It was really funny in the early, one of the early uh, jobs we did was for Cessna aircraft and they were introducing the Citation jet, which is now the biggest selling uh, small jet in the world. But right at the beginning, we wanted, they wanted me to do air to air work on it. And we would already had done some air air to air work with the Learjet. They said, no, 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 we can't use a Learjet. We're Cessna. We're coming up with a, actually a competitor to the Learjet is what we're introducing. So we can't shoot from a Learjet for this because some people, well, I don't know. They just said, can't do it that way. I said, we're well, never going to see the Learjet. They said, no, 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 we just can't do it. <laughs> by so principle. <laughs> I ended up with, by just on the principle of it. So I go, okay, I mean, they're the client. I'm not going to argue with them. So we ended up shooting air to air on the Citation jet. And we actually had two of them uh, from a old World War II bomber, a B-25, Mitchell bomber and this had been converted for film work and it had a nose uh, set up for a camera and a tail set up where they actually opened up the back of the tail and they had a mount there that the camera's on and then the camera guy's right behind the mount and you're looking out not through glass or anything right out into the air and uh camera guy's got a, a harness on and all that but uh it's just a really good aircraft for that and then they had a side mount uh with a, a bubble window to shoot through, and that that was okay. And the nose was through plexiglass in the front, and that was okay, but the back one was a great shot. And we actually took it over and went through the uh, Grand Canyon with these jets, got some terrific uh, footage. And then on the way back, the captain calls me, because we're all on headsets, calls me up and says, hey, Fred, you ever fly a B-25? And I said, <laughs> no. And I had flown up in my plane to, to, to do this, uh, this assignment. So he knew I was a pilot. He says, come on up. And I get up there and, and he puts me in the left seat, captain seat. And I flew the thing from the Grand Canyon back to uh, over to John Wayne Airport. And then, of course, when we got into the uh, L.A. area, he came back and <laughs> then he flew it in and landed it. But I got to fly this Mitchell for about an hour. Holy my God, it was so amazing. And I just kept thinking about these pilots going into World War II and getting shot at and everything. And this thing drives like if you it it would be like coming out of an Learjet, you're in a at a Lamborghini or a Ferrari, <laughs> and then you're in this thing and you're in a Mack truck without power steering. Unbelievable. Speaking of which, is there a plane that you would really love to fly, but just haven't had the chance to fly it yet? Uh yeah, some of the new uh Corporate jets would be really, really fun to fly. And I've never flown a real fighter jet, uh, which, would, which would be a lot of a hoot, too. I, I have had the opportunity to fly some airliners, which is interesting, because the simulators that they use are so real that if you 
go into one and and set it up right and really are are going to fly. You're not just in there playing. And these are multi-million dollar simulators with that you can get airsick in them. They're 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 that real. But uh, I actually did some serious flying in them with with the instructor and everything and and flying the left seat and had to hand fly instrument approaches to minimums in an MD-11. And let's see, I got to fly the 777, not the 777, the 767. And I also early in the early days got to fly a 727. And those are actually in, in my logbook as real flying. And one of them, a friend of ours, uh, was with FedEx, and he was a senior captain, and he got me in the FedEx simulators, and uh, this was an MD-11. And I got to tell you, they took me up to Alaska, and they put you out on final approach, and here you go, land, land it. And they set it up so that, you know, you don't have to go through ground school and know all the setups, you know, how much degree of flaps and this kind of thing. But we're on final approach. You put the gear down and set the flaps to what they said to set it to. And I'm flying in and I actually did a pretty decent landing. And they said, oh, and they stopped the simulator and they, boom, they pop you back out there again. He says, all right, smart ass. Let's, <laughs> let's see you do it with, with, uh, with some weather. So now you're going to have to fly an instrument approach without the autopilot down to minimums and land it. So I did it. I was, you know, if you can fly, you can fly. You got to learn all the systems and the speeds and everything. But they were helping me with that, but just talking me through it. But I you, I actually flew the airplane and I, again, landed OK. And they said, then my friend gets in there and he says, all right, make it hard for him because they're trying to make me crash. <laughs> well, that's what good friends do, right? <laughs> that's what good friends do. Sure. And these guys are just saying, this is not this. You're a private pilot. You're not supposed to be able to do this. So they gave me a, a quartering tailwind at the maximum component that you'd be legal to land in. Then they put it into a snowstorm, a driving snowstorm with uh, a slick runway and minimum visibility or you're right down literally at the minimums the, the airplanes allowed you're allowed to fly in for an ILS so at 200 feet in an MD11 at 130 knots you're moving and you know it's it's kind of hairy and I am actually starting to sweat on this approach it's that real and you get down and I landed it and I I bounced it pretty good <laughs> but I landed it without breaking it and uh, he went after and says all right, we're buying the beers tonight. Yeah. So that was that was a lot of fun. But they actually put it in the logbook. That's awesome. For the film at the C.R. Smith Museum, one of the things that I was allowed to put in it, which I, I wrote into the script, and it's one of the great things is I was working with the marketing guys who are really good. And then my main guy eventually became executive vice president of the company. But I also got to know the president and the chairman. And they they trusted me. So I, I talked them into allowing me to put into this film that all these kids and everybody else was going to see. And this is all in IMAX, a, an emergency scene. Now, I shot it in a simulator, not in a real airplane, but it's so real you can't tell. And I put these two pilots through their paces unbelievably in a, a DC-10. No, it was an MD-11, a three-engine. And on final approach, they lose an engine. 
and then they lose a second engine and they have to fly it. And this, these failures are as real as it gets in the real airplane. So they're going through the procedures and the camera's rolling over their shoulders and you see the whole thing. And then they get all the way to the ground and touch down. Now imagine you're doing a, a really a, a film for an airline and they're showing this really hairy emergency. You would think that, well, PR would never let you do it. Uh, <laughs> but but PR didn't have a say in this one. But when I was explaining to him, he says, well, no, we can't really show that. I said, well, wait a minute, because it gets on the when it gets onto the runway and they're starting to roll out and the guy's saying to flight attendants stand by for ground evacuation. And then all of a sudden it all comes to a stop. And then the simulator instructor leans in and says, well, that was pretty good, guys. Now let's make it hard. <laughs> and the co-pilot turns around and says, make it hard. And the captain says, oh, yeah, they, they can make it a lot worse. So you see that it's a training thing. And then the narration, you know, kind of talks about and you, then you have a wide shot of that whole simulator building with about 10 of these big simulators moving and everything. So you get the idea and it it's actually promoting safety. So. It was in there, but it was a, it's a real tense scene in the movie, and it was so successful. That, that movie ran for seven years Wow! Uh, before they called me and said, let's do another one. So, yeah, a lot of fun. That's awesome, man. I love how, how passionate you are about this. That's awesome. Uh, I, I want to go so, in so much details, but I'm sure some people are wondering now, if they're at this point of the episode, what are some misconceptions about people who are pilots? Uh, there aren't very many of them. <laughs> Most of the rumors are true. <laughs> Pilots come in a lot of varieties uh, and a lot of different temperaments. And, and I've, I've met some pilots that I wouldn't fly with. And I think what you want to look for is somebody who is really safety conscious and somebody who doesn't think they know it all. You never stop learning. The day you stop learning is the day you become dangerous. And Really competent pilots are always just have an awareness and you have checklists that you run and you don't want to ever get to where you, oh, I don't need the checklist. I know all of that. But if you've got any other things on your mind, it's so easy to look at the instruments and think everything's fine. And actually, because you've done it so many times, just look past it and expect it to be right. Mm -hmm. So your mind thinks it's right and you don't even catch it. You have to be more meticulous than that, and you have to be real careful to not let the repetition get you overconfident and miss things. And that that can happen. But uh, I would say that pilots are a breed of passionate people who are combining both the love of flying, but most of all, a, a passion for safety and Somebody said once, and this is really a good one, is takeoffs are optional. Landings are mandatory. And if you stop and think about that, it, there's, there's times when you just don't go. The weather is wrong. There just doesn't feel right. Uh, one of the things in my, uh, when I was, uh, just before I soloed, I remember this flight for absolute. Uh, I was, we were, it was a fairly warm day, so we're taxiing out to the runway. And it's a small uh, single-engine Piper Cherokee, uh, two-seater, two or four-seater, but just two of us. And the 
doors cracked to, for ventilation. There's no air conditioning until we get right out to the runway. Then just before we go, the instructor on the doors on his side, he pulls it shut and then we get the takeoff clearance and he gave it, got the takeoff clearance. He closed the door. And as I start going, I hear this clunk, 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 clunk uh, sound. And the faster we're going, I hear this clunk, clunk get, getting louder. And, and I said, I'm aborting the takeoff. And he says, no, 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 there's a, there's a plane behind us. You got to get going. And I, and I said, no. And I pulled the throttles back and aborted and called the tower and said, uh, I'm aborting our takeoff. The guy behind us had to go around and we taxied back. And as we're taxiing off the runway, I said, what the hell was that sound? And he said, it was me. I had my uh, seatbelt hanging out the door. So it start flapping when you got going, you passed the test. He, he wanted to see that under the pressure to take off, and even when he said, go, 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 there's another airplane behind us, from my instructor giving me an instruction that I didn't want to do because I was pilot in command, and I, I wasn't going to take off with that sound going on, and he said, you passed. So that was real interesting, but it's all about, there's a lot about judgment and safety. And if you look at the crash that just happened up in L.A. with poor Kobe Bryant, those nine people who perished in that helicopter crash, there was it's a thing called get to itis. You've got, you know, a lot of people weren't flying in that conditions and he flew into deteriorating visual conditions and ended up with a crash. And the uh, NTSB will come out with a final on it. But it seems apparent to all of the pilots that I've talked to and some pilots who our helicopter guys that I've flown with in the air who fly that area all the time said, yeah, he uh, made made a fatal error and then it tried to correct it too late. But uh, we'll see what it comes out. But that kind of accident can happen. The uh, the Kennedy uh, accident where he lost control of the airplane and crashed. He was warned not to go into those flying conditions at night. He didn't have his instrument rating. He was not that experienced of a pilot. And the corporate pilot for the, the Kennedy uh, clan had told him, don't fly tonight. Uh, I'll take you guys over. Uh, but he would he pressed on anyway. And it's that that kind of mindset that, oh, I can do it. I can do it. That can get you into trouble. So that's what you got to really, as a pilot, try to control. And it's called risk management is very, very important to stay safe. I completely agree with you because uh, I used to be a captain on a boat and then my boss would say, bring out the boat, bring out these because uh, I used to do tours. But if it was a, a storm coming along or I see a lightning storm. He said, yeah, yeah, go out. I'm like, it's a metal boat. I am not going out because if it gets struck by lightning, it can injure, seriously injure a lot of people. And it's exactly what you're saying. So, uh, no, no, I completely understand. And it's unfortunate that it does happen to some people and there's passengers on these planes or helicopters that do end up being injured, seriously injured or killed due to some pilot that decides to do something when this shouldn't have been done. But once again, this is one bad apple. I'm not saying they're always bad, but there's one in like a thousand kind of thing. Well, and, and it's mistakes and every it, we're human beings. We mm -hmm. make mistakes. But fortunately, most of them in aviation are caught and corrected before anything really bad happens. And in most accidents, uh, the crash investigators will tell you that there was a fatal chain. Uh, this wasn't noticed in maintenance. Then this happened, then this happened. And while they were dealing with this mechanical problem, they 
made uh, the mistake of not paying attention to something else and ended up crashing. Uh, so there's, but there's usually not one mistake, but two, three mistakes uh, or more in a row uh, that that lead to anything. May, on a lighter note, though, do you know what uh, the definition of uh, a good landing is? Good landing, great landing. Uh, the definition is one that uh, I don't know. Everybody is getting out of their seat and go, going off board. I don't know. <laughs> a good landing is anything you can walk away from. A great landing is when the aircraft remains reusable. <laughs> that makes sense. Now, if only NASA, <laughs> you know, I think NASA's starting to get along with that with their spaceships. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the reusable is a is a big thing. So yeah, it's, it's, it's so much fun though. I got to tell you, anybody who really is interested in flying, you go out to your local flight school and they'll have an introductory flight where they'll put you in the left seat. You'll fly with an instructor. They'll, they'll talk to you through a lot of things up front, the basic things, and then they'll actually let you do some of the flying and they'll show you the ropes and you probably will fly around the place for half an hour, 30 minutes, 30, 40 minutes and come back, but it gives you that whole feeling. And the first time that you touch the, either the stick or the uh, wheel, and you pull back and you start to lift off the ground, the exhilaration and the fun of that is amazing. You feel like at one with the plane. <laughs> yes. And I don't know if you can use this, but I'd like to play just a short piece of music for you that was done for uh, Galaxy Jet. It's a song that we we put together. And if you think about this as this plays and picture these jets flying along through the clouds and making these landings and just all this dramatic aviation footage that goes with it. Here's a piece of the song. Yeah, by all means. I am not sponsored by anybody. I don't have to owe anything to anybody. This is a free podcast. So yeah, by all means, play it. Touch 
touch the face of tomorrow was such a perfect uh, song, original song that uh, my friend Stan Beard wrote, and he did a lot of the scores for a lot of my videos and my feature film. But the the whole point of it is to capture the spirit of flying, at the same time tell a story about a new aircraft that's coming out, and it is forward thinking and it and it's the future of business aviation. And that's what they hired me to do is to make this video that would go to prospective owners and chief pilots. So therefore it's got to have some really cool flying stuff, but it's got to have all the facts and such in it as well. So we did a lot of this flying and told some of the facts with just really nice little graphics underneath. So it's just the music is so important. And you as a music producer will understand this more than most. If you ever see any part of a production before the music's in, you go, eh. And once they put the music in, it all comes together. And the music is the part that adds to picture and touches the heart. And that's what we did with this particular piece. You're absolutely right. Music ties everything together. Have you ever seen, let's say, a horror movie and they just take out the music? It's just not as scary. For the music just adds so much more oomph to it and it's a perfect combination. And now for you, what was your biggest challenge when you first started flying? I, I think the one of the biggest challenges was as you get into more complex airplanes, you have to have all of your skills really refined as you step up to each new airplane because things happen faster. Uh, the stepping up from the single engine to the twins they, they, they fly faster. You make your approaches a little bit faster. And then to go from the twin to my turboprop, well, the turboprop that I bought was a Mitsubishi MU-2, and it's, it's known as a very fast and, and kind of a slick airplane, a little bit like a jet, in that uh, control, is, it's moving a lot faster, and it's a much more complex airplane. So you really need to stay on top of it. And learning to have all of your resources in, in your brain functioning, thinking not two miles in front of the, your aircraft, but thinking 20 miles, 30 miles ahead, 50 miles ahead on a descent, 100 miles ahead if you're on a jet on a, on a descent. You have to, your planning has to be way earlier and your responses to things need, need to be more automatic. When I um, was selling my twin Cessna uh, and moving up to this Mitsubishi, the insurance company wouldn't even insure the airplane or me in it until I had 2,000 hours of multi-engine pilot and command time. I had to have that much that much experience before they would even let me get into the airplane. And even then, the requirement was to do uh, a, a full ground school and flying school uh, for 10 days. And then after that, I had to have a mentor pilot, which is like an instructor pilot, fly with me for the next 40 hours. In order to be solo in that airplane, you had to do all of that. And then you had to go back for recurrent training once every year. And that was because it's a very complicated airplane. And uh, I didn't feel real comfortable about flying it by myself with emergencies and such until, oh, about halfway through that uh, mentor period, because we flew all around the country for about eight days and did the 40 hours in eight days. And 
I got to tell you that the instructor was constantly putting me through emergency scenarios. And they put me under the hood so it's just like I'm in instrument conditions and they fail an engine or just you name it in, in difficult approaches. And we did fly in some actual weather and, and such until he was really comfortable that I could handle stuff. And there was a lot to learn because it's a very different kind of airplane, the, the MU-2. But it was uh, exhilarating, too, to be able to feel like you're mastering something new. Uh, and I think anybody in any skill set, when you go through it, whether you're a mu musician, uh, raising your skills and playing in, in a you know, a bigger or more professional organization, or you're an engineer and suddenly you're, you're doing major work. You have to step it up. If you're an actor and suddenly you're in a feature film with, with some real serious stars, you've got to up your game. And all of these skill sets are part of it. And that's part of the thrill of it is getting better and learning new things. And then of course, just being able to go places that nobody else can go be able to do something that most people can't do. That's very cool. Now, I don't know if this would be a good question, but it sounds like, you know, I might as well ask it. What is your current challenge today? Because based off of what you said, it sounds like you kind of do have challenges, but you know how to conquer them. So it doesn't sound like you have any challenges at all. <laughs> well, you, you always have challenges. And as I've gotten older, I've sold my airplanes and now I rent when I want to, I'm back to renting, but I'm very careful about where I rent when I do want to fly. But the, the challenge I face now is there's something I haven't done. And I got into the uh, production business at the beginning, wanting to produce and direct musical variety. And by the time I got going in the business, that genre had pretty well died. So I got to do a lot of other things and I had a different path, but I always wanted to do that. And uh, I am now uh, under contract to uh, finish the development and to take it through the pilot. And if it gets picked up, which is a big if in this business, um, direct the first, the pilot and the first four shows and to stay on as a uh, creative executive producer of a new um, musical variety show which is uh, going to be presented to the networks. I can't really talk about it beyond that, but I'm really excited because it's the one last biggie on my bucket list that I haven't done yet. Well, I'm knocking on wood right now for you, wishing you the best of luck. And this episode's coming out in a few months, so maybe by then it'll be out. And if it is, we could share that link in the description so people can go check it out. Absolutely. And if there's one other thing I'd like to just mention is I uh, wrote a book about how I was able to mostly outside of Hollywood, create a really successful, well, multi-million dollar production company before I was 30 and keep it going for 40 years. And it's called Advocate for the Audience. And it uses, it really has a lot of examples of both the aviation side and the music side uh, and how that all works in production and how it was able to open doors. And it's a lot of business side, but it's it's all told in true stories about how to build your brand, grow, grow your business, whatever it might be, and how to use your hobby uh, and your passion to in, enhance your business, which is what I did with aviation and, and production. 
You know what? This is the perfect segue from my next question. Do you have any websites or links that you would like to share projects? At this point, I want you to share everything that you want to present as you. I want people to come support you, follow you, see your magnificent work, support all your hobbies, all your passions. Uh, yes, I have a, uh, a, a website. It's real easy. Fred, F-R-E-D at Fred Ashman, A-S-H-M-A-N dot com. And, uh, that and, and the book is on there and a lot of the things we've done is on there. And uh, then at some point we'll talk about my other hobby, which is really hobby. And that is uh, model trains. And I have the, the, the large G scale, you know what HO is? Well, these are like way, way bigger than HO. Each engine's probably uh, oh, somewhere between a foot and a half and two feet long. And I have a 2,000 square foot building at our uh, home up in Minnesota, our second home. And uh, I have a huge train layout in there that I go up a couple times a year. We're next door to uh, my daughter and son-in-law and four little grandkids who love to come over and run trains with me. And I built that up. And that's, that's my other hobby. And is there a connection between the trains and the planes? <laughs> no. <laughs> You're a man of many interests. Yeah, you know, you, you just follow where you can. I uh, at one time I had uh, boats, but uh, and uh, I I had my own sixty footer for about five years, and then uh, we sold that so I could get an airplane. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you got you had planes, you had train toy trains or model trains, you had a boat. The last question is: Did you have a submarine and a spaceship? Just to complete the set. <laughs> no, but I dreamed about them. <laughs> Have you ever been in a submarine? Uh, yes, but not one that went under. Uh, well, I went in the one in Hawaii. It was a real submarine and went down pretty pretty deep and uh, went all around. It was one of those tourist ones. That was that was pretty interesting. And of course, we they every now and then they'd have a submarine open here in town, uh, here in San Diego, but not not for real no but you know no, you, you've been in one like i've been in one like that a tourist one it's still going under the sea which is still pretty cool it's kind of yeah like, very cool yeah i'm sure you see some fish you probably don't see the same things while you're flying the plane but <laughs> it's a different experience yet very similar well I, I i the only time i've seen a flying fish fish was out in catalina so but <laughs> <laughs> you probably don't see that in the plane <laughs> no well, you hope not <laughs> Then it became a submarine. <laughs> we did have one shoot with a Learjet where I was doing one of the IMAX films. And we went off the coast uh, up by Monterey. And we literally flew over the rocks and uh, the I think it's the 18th hole at Pebble Beach. Just We were offshore, so we were legal. But we were <laughs> at 20 feet in a Learjet doing about a, 170 knots. And it goes flying by. It's just oh, stuff like that is so very cool. Actually, speaking of which, have you ever flown or flew in a plane that the ones that land on the water? Uh, I have flown in one. I, I never got a seaplane rating or anything because I never had uh, the opportunity or the need to to learn that. But I, I took when the, uh, they used to have flying boats out to Catalina in the way in the early days. I, I flew in one of those. And that that's. That's a bit of a rush. <laughs> and uh, I just never had that desire because that's really tricky stuff and can be quite dangerous. But uh, a lot of people do it very, very well and, and very safely. But uh, that's that's a different skill set that I never got into. One of the things that uh, we did do, though, one time is uh, 
I had uh, a plane, one of the planes I was renting, and was coming back from L.A., and I had my cousin with me. He had never been to an edit session in L.A., so he got to go, and we're on our way back, and it was dusk, and we're coming back to Montgomery Field in San Diego, and it was a twin-engine Piper Aztec. And we get getting ready to land, I put the gear down, and I get two green and no green for the nose gear. Well, this airplane had had a little bit of history of that. Somebody had reported that that had happened to them, too, and it was uh, the set switch would stick and it wouldn't come down when, when the gear came down. So I, I flew around and I tr cycled the gear a few times. I didn't you know, make the approach and I just got a holding pattern talking to the tower. And then it still, I still couldn't get a green light. So I put the gear down and I said, I'd like a little flyby. And the tower, had, they have a big spotlight there. And I said, I'd like a little flyby and have you take a look at it, see what you can see. So I flew by the tower and the guy says, it's down, but it's definitely not locked. Well, he didn't know what it looked like, locked or not locked, but he was being careful. So declared an emergency, and we're flying around a little bit. And uh, all of a sudden, my cousin says, oh, look, look at all the fire trucks down there. And I said, yeah, that's for us. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, oh. I said, it's okay. I'd, I'd, I'd be more worried if it was a one of the side landing gear, you know, the main gear. But the nose gear... Uh, if it collapses after landing, we'll be fine. Uh, but here's how you, you know, here's how to open the door, to, briefed him on all that stuff. And then I came in for the landing and it was really interesting. There's a great big chain link fence for between the frontage road and the airport there. And the airport, they had uh, regular fire trucks from the fire department, but they didn't really have a, a serious crash truck. So Miramar Naval Air Station had sent their crash truck down because I was circling for a while before this happened. But the Miramar crash truck wasn't on site yet. So as I was coming in and I crossed the fence, the Miramar crash truck was out on the frontage road. And in order to be right behind me on the runway, he turned and drove right through an eight-foot chain link fence. Wow. And in order, in order to be on the runway behind me, just in case. And I, I didn't know any about this, anything till later. And uh, actually, I didn't declare an emergency. The tower did for me, uh, which is interesting because of the paperwork involved. So I landed, and then the, the green light was still off. The landing gear held perfectly fine. Everything was fine. And then I, I'm taxiing in, and the green light popped on. But uh, the uh, tower said, are you okay? And I said, oh, everything's fine. And because as I came across the fence, I shut the engines down and, and did all of that and landed, rolled out, started up the engines and taxied away. They never even asked me to fill out any paperwork. And I don't know who I don't know who paid for the chain link fence, but I was so impressed that they would do that just to be right there in case they needed in case they were needed. And that just goes to show that communication is definitely key and this sound like a very efficient operation. Oh yeah, that the 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 ATC and the people who run the towers and such, a lot of them are also pilots, but they're all really good. They're all so professional. And that's one of the things about aviation community. Everybody's looking out for everybody else so that you can catch a mistake or you can you, you communicate these kinds of things. And pilots have a great deal of autonomy and control, but it's really good to 
when you're coordinating. And of course, with with traffic and heavy traffic areas, you really rely on the controllers for air traffic separation, which is their primary job. But you as a pilot are always the one who's in the final say responsible for the safe operation of the airplane. And if you declare an emergency, you can you can uh, as part of the regulation, you can deviate uh, from any of the normal rules. You can do whatever you feel is necessary to operate safely. So it's a great uh, bunch of responsibility that is shared by all pilots, but we still have so much respect for the air traffic community. The, the controllers are so good. I love I love that aspect of just everybody's helping each other out. And also like you're saying that you are the one the pilot so you have the final say because you have the feel of the plane you know what it's going through so you're going to say you know what no i can make it or i can't make it i have to go this way i have to do this which is always a good thing now for the last question is a question i'm not prepared for but i i have what 90 episodes so i'm going to keep up the streak uh do you have any questions for me about flying <laughs> have you ever uh flown as a pilot i have not flown as a pilot but i remember as a kid i used to go to an aviation camp a lot and uh, I just loved it. My friend and I just loved planes and just going in them. And uh, I remember there's two summers. We at the end of this uh, the week, as all summer camps, camps are, you get to fly in a plane. And one week for one year was an open cockpit. Like it was just open. And I had such a great time in that one. And the other one was just a enclosed one. So a hard top. That one was a little more nervous. I don't know why, but it just, I love, it was just a different experience. Have you ever flown a plane with this open cover? Open cockpit, yeah, I, I did. I did one uh, ride along in in you know, one of those. I, I I loved it. It was a lot of fun. Here's the other thing that I would tell you that you really ought to do. You really ought to go out to one of the local flight schools and do their introductory flight, where you actually get on the controls. Now, you may hate me for this <laughs> later, because I guarantee you, you're going to get addicted. It's it is so cool. It is the most wonderful feeling of freedom and control. And, you know, you always dream of what is it like to just fly and lift off? It's one thing to ride. It's another thing to literally make it happen. And you turn the wheel in it and you bank and turn and move. Uh, you go up, you go down. It is amazing. You just got to try it. Got to try it. I know this is a bad like com comparison, but is it like the feeling when you're a kid and your father or mother lets go of the bike and you're finally riding it by yourself? You're like, oh, I'm actually doing it. I don't know how I'm doing it. I'm doing it. This is it. It is exactly <laughs> that feeling on steroids. <laughs> okay. Well, in that case, I have a friend, a family friend who's a pilot. Uh, I might ask him his advice. He's in, I'm in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. So winter might be a little more tricky for somebody learning how to fly. I would imagine summer would probably be the best because like you said, slick um, path might be a little trickier. <laughs> Absolutely. I just highly recommend it to everyone. Okay. So I'm going to reach out to my family friend and see if uh, he can uh, give me some pointers. So uh, yeah, there you have it. Another body with a hobby. Thank you so much, Fred, for coming on and just telling me so much information and just teaching me all about flying and being a pilot and the actual thrill of it. And it just sounds like you are so passionate. You have many hobbies and you sounds like you're passionate about every single one of them. But I really got like tied into your stories about being a pilot and how you got started, how you grew up with it, how you taught other kids. And I like that analogy that um, taking off is an option, but landing is not. 
<laughs> like, I'm not, sorry, not, not, I butchered that. I mean, what was it again? It was uh, something along the lines that takeoffs are optional, landings are mandatory. That's it. That's it. And I feel like that's an analogy you could use on multiple levels, but that's so cool. So, uh, yeah, but once again, thank you so much, Fred. You're very welcome. And I look forward to listening to the podcast when you have it out there. Well, I'm definitely going to share it. And speaking about sharing, for people who want to learn more about Fred, you can go check out the link in the, trip in the description below. Learn more about him, support him, follow him, do everything you need to do because Fred is a lovely person, is so enthusiastic, so passionate, and I'm sure he would love to get in contact with you if you have any questions about pilot and flying. Right, Fred? Right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, they can email me at fred at fredashman.com. Perfect. I'll add that in there as well. And if you'd like to get in contact with me or have any questions or even want to be on my podcast, you can send me an email at timeforyourhobby at gmail.com. And of course, if you like this podcast and want to show some support, reviews are always good. I never say no to reviews. And of course, I'm also selling merchandise, things with the little Time For Your Hobby logo on things you don't need. But you know what? It's there because it's the internet. You could sell anything. So why not just jump in the bandwagon? And uh, yeah, so thank you again, Fred. I keep saying thank you, but it was just honestly, thank you so much. You're very welcome. It was my pleasure. Absolutely. So until the next episode, make some time for your hobby. Take care.